Well, welcome back to Elevate Ordinary. Today we're talking about the art of the common man and one of our favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to Elevate Ordinary. I'm your host, John Mark Grodi. And I'm Teresa Grodi. <laughs> I did it. Yes, you got it. You nailed it. Yeah, you're getting better every time with that. Yay. Thanks you again for joining us for another conversation here about the everyday bits of life that if we dig into them a little bit, we discover God's presence, the opportunities he wants to us to take to uh, become the people he made us to be. And today we're joined by a very special guest whom I will introduce in a moment. But before I get there, um, if you would go to awakencatholic.org, and join the Awaken Nation. If you like this show, what we're doing in this ministry, uh, a one-time recurring donation means a lot, and you're supporting a beautiful media like this. But another way to support the ministry is by downloading the Hallow app at hallow.app slash awaken and getting the 30-day free premium subscription. It's a really great app, app very beautiful, uh, very helpful for your morning cup of coffee, spending some time with the Lord. So download that at hallow.app slash awaken. So once again, here we are, and um, we're joined by a, a good uh, friend and contact of ours, and someone you probably know if if you're uh, if you're aware of involved in the Catholic media. Brandon, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, John Mark. I always love spending time with you and Teresa, two of my favorite people in the world. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Oh, you're too kind. Yeah, Brandon. I have to say, when we started this, you were my first idea for a guest. I was like, oh, we have to have a conversation. If we're having a show about great conversations, we have to have a conversation with yeah. Brandon Vaught. <laughs> well, people probably know you, uh, Brandon Vaught, uh, connected with uh, Word on Fire Ministries. That may be where they've seen your name around, but there's lots of other places as well. Give us the quick, uh, quick elevator pitch here. Who are you? What do you do? Sure. I'm Brandon Vaught. I work as the senior content director for Bishop Robert Barron's Word on Fire ministry. So I, I coordinate and run all of our content, our websites, our books, our film programs, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm also an author. So I've written nine books now. Uh, a couple of my most recent ones are Why I Am Catholic and You Should Be Too. And then the most recent one, What to Say and How to Say It, Discuss Your Catholic Faith with Clarity and Confidence. I run several websites and digital initiatives. Uh, I'll mention just two of them. One is Claritas U. So Claritas, the Latin word for clarity. Claritas U is an online membership community for Catholics where I run video courses on hot button topics. So things like atheism, same-sex marriage, transgenderism. And I teach Catholics how to talk about these things confidently and clearly. And then also strangenotions.com. Strange Notions is a place where Catholics and atheists come together to dialogue about the big questions of life from religion to morality to books, to current events, all that stuff and more. Um, so that's probably a, a brief synopsis of all the different pots I have spinning in the air. <laughs> yeah. And then you didn't even get into your uh, your farm and your family and all that. Well, we'll get to that in a minute because that's a bit of what we're talking about today. So to set up our conversation today, um, we're beginning with uh, a favorite quote of ours from Chesterton and we have a common love for Chesterton here. And the, the short quote, I'm going to read the short quote first, and then we'll go to the longer version of it. Property is merely the art of democracy. And I'm going to read the longer quote so you can get the context here um, to see what he's talking about, and then, and then we'll go from there. So Chesterton writes somewhere here, Man's pleasure, therefore, 
is to possess conditions, but also to be partly possessed by them. To be half controlled by the flute he plays or by the field he digs, the excitement is to get the utmost out of given conditions. The conditions will stretch, but not indefinitely. A man can write an immortal sonnet on an old envelope or hack a hero out of a lump of rock, but hacking a sonnet out of a rock would be a laborious business, and making a hero out of an envelope is almost out of the sphere of practical politics. This fruitful strife with limitations when it concerns some airy entertainment of an educated class goes by the name of art. But the mass of men have neither time nor aptitude for the invention of invisible or abstract beauty. For the mass of men, the idea of artistic creation can only be expressed by an idea unpopular in present discussions, the idea of property. The average man cannot cut clay into the shape of a man, but he can cut earth into the shape of a garden. And though he arranges it with red geraniums and blue potatoes and alternative straight lines, he is still an artist, because he has chosen. The average man cannot paint the sunset whose colors he admires, but he can paint his own house with what color he chooses. And though he paints it pea green with pink spots, he is still an artist, because that is his choice. Property is merely the art of the democracy. It means that every man should have something that he can shape in his own image as he is shaped in the image of heaven. But, be, but because he is not God, but only a graven image of God, his self-expression must deal with limits, properly with limits that are strict and even small. So, Brandon, property is the art of democracy. What does that make you think of? Yeah, you know, this is, uh, I've read this uh, book of Chesterton, What's Wrong with the World, yeah. so many times, three or four times. But man, every time I read that passage, or really anything in Chesterton, it, there's new dimensions and new depths to it that I didn't see before. Um, this has always been one of my favorite principles of Chesterton's. And uh, just to like set a little background here. So Chesterton is part of this early 20th century movement of, of mostly English thinkers known as distributists. So this would include people like uh, Hilaire Belloc and Father Vincent McNabb, Eric Gill. Um, Chesterton's probably their, their greatest mouthpiece because he's a journalist and a prolific writer. But one of the central uh, principles of distributism is the wide distribution of property and ownership of means of labor. So when we hear the word property, we think mostly of, of land, that lots of people should own their own piece of land. But for the distributors, it was more than just land. It was property, you know, things like tools or, you know, anything that can produce something. Um, so that would include animals too, and yeah. uh, fruitful animals. Um, but anyway, when he says that property is merely the art of democracy, he means that if if we as men and women are created in the image and likeness of God, we're created to be uh, creators, for lack of a better word, and we can only do that with things that are within our control. Creativity requires ownership and and freedom. Uh, in Chesterton's day, and sadly in, in our day, there's a lot of push for uh, forms of socialism which remove private property. And when that happens, you not only lose democracy politically, but you you lose the democratic spirit among individual people and individual families. No longer do they own a house. No longer do they own a land. No longer can they do what they want with their own property. Their property is given to them, usually with strings attached or with restrictions imposed. And so for Chesterton, a lot of these distributists, the distribution of private property was linked uh, uh, tightly to democracy. You couldn't have one without the other. You can't have democracy, but people don't own property and vice versa. You can't have 
um, you you can't have socialism and have people having private property. Um, so I think it's a fascinating insight. It's one that um, I think Chesterton loved to play with throughout his books and especially in his novels. You see this idea pop up that like uh, there's the English saying, you know, that every every house is a man's castle or whatever mm -hmm. the form is. And yeah. Chesterton always liked to say that the house is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside because yeah. inside the castle, you have complete freedom to teach your kids what you want, to read what you want, to watch what you want, to paint the walls, the colors that you want, to get the furniture you want, to lay out the house you want. You have almost this unlimited democratic freedom, mm -hmm. if you will, inside the house. But then outside the house is where there's imposed restrictions of all sorts of things. So um, again, long-winded long -winded way to, to affirm what Chesterton's saying that democracy and the distribution of property are really, really linked together. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I, bringing up, you know, the terms freedom and, and the liberty here that we're talking about connected to democracy, um, we have to, uh, it gets to this distinction between freedom from, uh, freedom for and freedom from. You know, we don't have, we don't want or have freedom simply to do whatever we want. We, we have freedom, we protect freedom for something, for a purpose. You know, and what I love about this passage from Chesterton is, is he's talking about we have sort of a common vocation as human beings made in the image and likeness of God to be creators, to be mm -hmm. artists. And, and not all of us, as he points out, we can't all be painters necessarily or sculptors. We don't all have that ability or that time, but we're all called to still be artists. And the way that the common person does that is through their property. We have that freedom. We have that property to to, to fulfill that vocation uh, in whatever way God's called us to do. And so um, I, I love this notion again, that we're all, that we're all artists and that the property, what we do in our home and our family, how we, we build that little life, that house that's bigger on the inside. That's how we live out that vocation as artists. Yeah. I remember that exact moment when I realized that, that was a reality. Um, we, when we got married, we like kind of lived with people and squatted in empty houses <laughs> um, for a really long time. Like maybe I think for five years, we lived just in property that wasn't ours. And every time we lived somewhere, it would always be like, okay, whatever we put on the wall, it has to be able to be like taken off the wall and like moved easily, or we have to have a plan for it when we get out. And then I remember we moved into our home, like the home that we now own, well, the, the bank owns it, but you know, we own. Um, I remember thinking like, we have got to do something about the lack of mudroom and we need to put something on the wall. But then I was like, but it has to be something cheap because we don't have a lot of money right now. And like, I don't want to put a hole in the wall. And then I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is my home. And I, I have the rest of my life to figure out this little area of a mudroom and it'll change with our family. And if I make a hole in the wall, that's my hole. And we'll figure out what to do with it. You know, and even now, like, um, I'm a big gardener. So even things like the weeds that grow in the cracks in our driveway, yeah. I love the weeds. And I know our neighbors probably want us to kill them all the time. <laughs> but like every time they spring up, I'm like, ah, life yeah. on my life, on my property. It's this like overflowing of divine creativity on my little plot. Yeah. I love it. I think most of us, have experienced that whether we're living in our, our own house or even to an extent in an apartment, although 
again, Chesterton draws like a, a pretty thick line between the ownership of say land yeah. or a house and renting something from somebody else. But nevertheless, I think all of us experience there's something different when you have something growing on your land or you make a change to your property versus say when you go to work and you're in an office or in a cubicle, you can customize it a little bit. Like you can hang up yeah. a few pictures or put up a few knickknacks on your desk or whatever, but you realize like, this is not my space. This isn't a, a full expression of, mm -hmm. of me. You know, Chester mm -hmm. says, you know, just as we're creating the image of God, we, cr we create our property in our image, yeah. but there's a sense that if you don't own that property, you're severely limited to the extent that you can reflect your image in your property. Yeah. You know, it connects to another notion I think I have, I've thought about before here, which is, you know, we tend to think, and rightly so, of our culture as being sort of materialistic, focused on stuff too much. But I often wonder, you know, sometimes do do we love our stuff too much or do we not love it not enough and in the wrong ways? You know, we don't cherish stuff in our culture. We consume it, right? Mm. You know, that's but, the relationship that we have to our things. We want, we want to, we, we burn through stuff. We want to binge on TV. Mm -hmm. We want to eat cheap food. Um, but that's very different than cherishing a piece of property or cherishing the, cherishing the tools that you use to work it. Mm -hmm. the, the first yeah, I, time I read, oh, sorry, Brandon. No, I, I was just going to add, Teresa, that for, for Chesterton, like property isn't good in and of itself. What makes it especially uh, good is productivity. So when you are able to produce things from your property, that's when you're fulfilling this co-creating dimension of your human person. So um, like, it's not good just to buy something and consume it and eviscerate it. Mm -hmm. It's good to buy something that you own. And then through that, bring about other goods, you know, to buy mm -hmm. land and grow a garden to, you know, buy a house and let that house foster new life through children and through, you know, company and through gatherings and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think Chesterton's view of property is antithetical to the way we typically consume things today. Having property and using it fruitfully isn't the same as just acquiring things. Right. Yeah. And what actually this is perfect because what I was going to say is the first time I read Rerum Navarum, which is, is it an, an encyclical or a letter? An encyclical. Okay. Yeah. Uh, by Pope Leo the Thirteenth, I remember just being in such awe of the way that he um, he talks about natural law and property ownership in which um, like there's a, because humans need to be sustained, what sustains them essentially, and I mean, he's not making any kind of legal statement here, but like what sustains them, the the earth that you work, you know, the way you take what what's in the earth and then build the structure that's going to provide for your family and your own sustenance, like in a way it makes your personality goes into that plot of land and it makes it yours. And I had never thought of private property in that way. And it's in like the the under the underpinning thing is like that it's sustaining you and that human beings have to be sustained. What he says, like once you've eaten, you're not just going to be full forever. You have to continuously feed yourself. And so what you use, you know, whether you hire another person to do it or, you know, like because human beings have to be sustained, property, like what sustains them essentially becomes yours. You know, it, it's just, it, it's so so beautiful. Yeah, I love that encyclical, Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Mm -hmm. You know that encyclical, Rerum Novarum, was sort of the fountainhead for mm -hmm. 
Chesterton's whole group of distributists. In fact, they kind of came up with this economic proposal, distributism, as a concretization of Leo XIII's encyclical. They, mm -hmm. they asked, what would these principles look like applied you know, to, to families and to communities? And distributism was their result. I, I think it's one of the, I mean, it's widely considered to be the first encyclical of modern Catholic social teaching. Right. And if you want to look at Catholic social teaching, that's the beginning of it. But I still think it's one of the most sort of underread, under-discussed mm -hmm. encyclicals. Yeah. And I think it has still a lot of relevance today because again, um, especially in our generation, you know, kind of the millennial generation, there's become a renewed infatuation with various forms of socialism. And the main characteristic of every form of socialism is the abolishment of private property. Uh, a lot of people think that there's not something intrinsically good about people owning property. Mm -hmm. um, so I think like Rerum Navarum is a good wake up call. Like it remains a prophetic yeah. encyclical today. Yeah. Yeah, and you underestimate the um, the depression that will follow from yeah. not having anything of your own to create with. And I, I think Jennifer Fulweiler's book, One Beautiful Dream, is just a, a really beautiful narrative through this because she talks about what happens when her God-given talent to write, like to take stories and make them and like and bring them to other people. What happened when it was stifled because she imagined that when you start having six kids in eight years, you know, you, you hear what people say, like, don't do anything else right now. Just worry about the, your happiness should be here and your kids, um, which isn't untrue. Uh, but that God is in control of our creativity. And when he wants to create through us, when we're saying no to something that he wants to unleash his divine creativity through, there is like, there's a depression that occurs. There's a, a sadness and, um, you know, like a, a pricking, like I'm not doing something that I should be. I love right. that book. If you haven't read it, I, it's a, such a quick read. I think I read it in two days. I didn't feed the kids for two days, but I read that book <laughs> when it came out. Yeah, well, that, you know, that image of, of you know, the, the artist that's not able to create their art. I mean, that's maybe one we can imagine from movies or TV. But again, if we think of it in, in the context of this this topic, uh, what Chesterton's saying here is that we're all called to be an artist in this broad sense. You know, we're called to have, to carve out a little place in this world and to produce with it, to make something beautiful from it. Um, uh, and if we're, if we're not doing that, then there is something missing. Again, that's, that's the piece of, of socialism or some of these types of things that's, to me, so, so wrong. It's, it's inhuman, you know, that we, we are, it's part of being a human to co-create with God, to sub-create, mm. and we need property for that. You know, it reminds me of something Chesterton also said in The Everlasting Man, which is his book sort of providing a Christian interpretation of all of human history. So he starts off with, you know, the so-called cavemen, and he makes the point in the early chapters that we really don't know a lot about the first humans. Like we have a few little artifacts, you know, maybe a broken cup here and a few bones here. And yet from those things, historians speculate in all sorts of wild ways, you know, right. that you got this stereotype of the caveman grabbing his wife by the hair and dragging her, you know, into the woods. He's like, why do we believe that? Like, yeah, what, where yeah. does that Dominic just made from? a picture. Our, our nine-year-old yeah. just drew a picture of that the other day. And I was like, like where did he has been reading the far sides, you know, yeah. good high culture. Yeah, that's <laughs> but then he closes, he closes the reflection by saying, there is, however, one thing that we certainly know about the earliest men. We don't know how they talked. We don't know how they communicated. We don't know how they lived. We don't know what their marriages were like. The one thing we do know is that they were artists. 
And he says, you know, the earliest historical artifacts we have are paintings on cave walls. And he said, <laughs> it's the one thing that distinguishes men from other beasts. You know, of course you have the ability to reason, the ability to love, et cetera, but the ability to create art. He says, yeah. you know, like, where are the horses painting on the cave walls? Where are the oxes sketching pictures of humans? You know, it's only humans it's, that re reflect artistically on the world. And so his point was that creating art is intrinsic to being human. Yeah. And so to tie it back to this discussion, when you don't have property of your own with which to, um, you know, pour out that artistic impulse, you're deprived of something innately human. And we, we see this everywhere that property has been abolished. You know, look at the socialist and communist regimes of the 20th century. Go to go to Russia and look at, you know, the buildings and the apartment complexes, the community houses. They're drab, they're bare, they're sterile, cold, and human because people didn't own those places mm -hmm. and they didn't have the the right or the ability to fashion them how they, how they want to fashion them in their own image. Right. Um, so for Chesterton, art is intrinsically human and, dem and property, democracy, and art, all of those things are linked together. So even in our own time and context, you know, a, a not whatever you want to call our particular form of government and form of uh, social organization that we're living in right now, um, we too, though, see, you know, a diminishment of this, this really human vocation of artistry, of cherishing the, the land and the, the property, the things that you have, and then producing good from them. I think there's lots of reasons for that, you know, but it, it does occur to me that even in our Catholic Christian context, I think it seems like I, I've met many uh, men and women over the years that they don't, they haven't glimpsed and grasped what Chesterton calls the, the romance of dom domesticity, the, the wildness of domesticity, the adventure that it is to have a family and a home that's even even for many, I think, uh, very faithful Christians and Catholics, the, the home and the family is kind of like I, I do that. It's over here and I maintain it, but I need to still go out there to seek, you know, my meaning and my purpose and the project that's going to fulfill me. But mm. I think we've oftentimes we've missed the greatest adventure that God's given us in our our home and family. Mm. You know, Chesterton quite infamously um, got into trouble with a lot of the early feminists who were <laughs> championing women's right to vote. And Chesterton didn't necessarily disagree that women should be able to vote, but he strongly disagreed with a lot of the arguments that they made for why women should vote. And right. one of them was that women need to get out of the home and into the workforce and into the voting boxes so that they can leave an imprint on the world and on the culture. That if women are just left at home, they won't have any way to shape the world around them. And Chesterton bucked against that argument because yeah. he said, no, that has it exactly backward because the place where a woman can most impact the world is in her own home through the shaping, the formation of her own children, of the land, the house that is around her. She has unlimited romantic, explosive freedom mm -hmm. to create all the, the formation of people and the formation of things, however she'd like. Whereas when she goes into the workforce, typically in Chesterton's day and in our day, she's working underneath a boss who just really tells her what to do and gives her tasks and assigns her with limited flexibility. Um, and we could get into the voting stuff as well, too. Sure. But his point was that I mentioned this quote earlier. The world is bigger inside the home than outside the home. Yeah. And that's paradoxical for us today, because as you said, John Mark, most of us think 
well, the home is kind of, you know, this kind of bland, <laughs> dumpy place that you right. go when you're not doing important, important things, things like yeah. working or entertainment or vacationing or whatever. But in Chesterton's view, and I think the classical view for hundreds of years, the home is is where things are at. Everything else is supplementary to the home. I love Chesterton's ability to turn these misconceptions on their head and to see the truth. You know, I, I don't think it was Chesterton. I think it was Lewis who said the quote about um, that, that ho the homemaker is the ultimate vocation, the ultimate profession. All other professions exist to support that mm -hmm. primary vocation. You know, we're called to be at home, we're called to have a family. Where that, that's where we have the impact. That's where we have new life. That's where we create our, our most important art. But for, again, for so many people in our culture, even in our church, that's sort of the afterthought. That's the thing you manage and make sure it's not, you know, falling apart too much, but then the important stuff is out there. And I just think that's that's not the case. Yeah, I uh, growing up just feminist -y, and I and I'm grateful that I came from strong women and, you know, was like, fostered and in my education and I never thought that I couldn't be anything but when I decided and there when I decided to get married and we decided to homeschool I did it with my free will and I never thought that someone else would second guess that but I had such a huge pushback from my family you know specifically that I'm wasting my education, <laughs> which by the way, I earned from scholarships, so we didn't pay anything for the education, so, <laughs> you know, like Socialism. that I'm wasting it. And I'm sitting here thinking like they would be happy if I got a job as a historian teaching a hundred high school kids. But the fact that like, I'm going to have my own children and I'm going to teach them everything about the universe. Yeah. Everything. And suddenly that like, this is not enough. And, and, and from my own free will too, yeah. like, it's not like he, I mean, he homeschooled and I was vehemently opposed to that. And sorry, I didn't intend to go the homeschooling route, but I kind of do because <laughs> um, like, I think a lot of times when particularly Christians homeschool, people imagine it's so that you can mold your children and you can keep them in a particular environment so that they can become the, the Christian that you want them to become. But in reality, like the more that we homeschool, the more I'm like, I want them to be in this environment where who they are can just absolutely flourish. Like they can have more creativity and they can have more personality and they can have more freedom to pursue what they want rather than being boxed in. And in a way, like, I hope that I'm cultivating in them this desire for their own particular art, you know, that when they have a home someday, it becomes the center of their life that everything else works towards, yeah. you know, protecting or fostering or bringing them back to. The most gratifying thing in the world is when they're, they're playing house or they're planning their own marriage or their own future <laughs> home. And they're telling us all the, we're going to do this, this, and you can come over to visit. Cause the point is that they've glimpsed that vision. That, that, yeah, they'll probably have to go get a job and they'll go to school and all that kind of stuff. But the real, the real my, meat my life. My garden, mommy. And yeah. I had a home birth just like you did. <laughs> you know, that, we had our first home birth this last time and it really left an impression on the children. They weren't even there. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are both putting your fingers on the same things Chesterton did, you know, at the risk of making this a Chesterton. Go for it. Traffic. Full yeah. speed ahead. Yeah. We both you know, named we, our kids after Chesterton. Go right, for right. it. So I think we have credentials enough to speak yeah. as often as we can about him. Um, one of the things he said about modern education is it, he said, like, it causes me to scratch my head that a woman would prefer to leave her home to become a teacher where she would teach a lot of kids a few things 
versus staying home and teaching a few kids everything. And his point was that like, as a, as a homeschooling mother, you get to shape every dimension of your child's life, intellectually, emotionally, religiously, philosophically, socially, all that kind of stuff. Whereas like, and so his point is like, that's more capacious. That's bigger than the minor impact you would have by leaving the home to becoming a teacher. Um, Because again, I think we get it backward today a lot. We get it backward. We think if, you know, if I want to have a bigger impact, I need to go get a prominent job somewhere else Mm -hmm. and help other people. Whereas again, the Chesterton is like the the thing that, that God has put you in position to form and shape and mold is your land, your house, your children. Mm -hmm. That's where your gifts are meant to flourish the most. Yeah. I think even though I don't recall him ever writing about it, I think he really grasped something that we don't anymore, which is the matriarchy. You know, the, this mom, you know, for some reason I always go to like Chinese culture, maybe it was like Joy Luck Club or something like that. But the mom, the mom that's like the top of the 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 hierarchy that kind of controls everyone you know like we don't think i think jennifer fulweiler actually just had an episode about this or something on her podcast but it was just like we've lost that true authentic fierce femininity you know the mother guarding the cubs the you know the the mother of the well and also like the divine fertility goddess. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been times where within my own self, I totally get how people could have worshipped the woman. Mm-hmm. I get why the Taj Mahal, like when you hear the Taj Mahal was like an ode to this wife who died, you always imagine that she's like a young thing who is very beautiful, was cut down in a prime. This woman gave birth to 14 children. <laughs> And you get it now. I get why he would build the Taj Mahal for her. Because if you stood in front of that woman. I start making notes here. Tall order. She must have been something to behold. You know, she must have been something incredible that you would have stood in awe of, that you would have wanted to build the Taj Mahal for. I feel the most edified and fulfilled when my fertility is spilling over and not just not just from children you know when you th- you think of good christian women popping out babies or whatever but like my fertility spills to every aspect of my life sometimes you know you feel like fern gully the the nymph thing that would like walk and like flowers would just <laughs> like be growing in the ground behind her um you know the the, the pagan christian crossovers that sometimes occur <laughs> Well, no, but like, I feel so fulfilled as a woman, Mm -hmm. you know, um, by ordering my life properly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the more that you lose control of property, the more restricted you are in that, you know? And again, this is like, I hate keep using the bifurcation of like the home versus the workplace, but Mm -hmm. the more you go away from the home and into the workplace where you're working for someone else. So Mm -hmm. Chester would draw a sharp distinction between like entrepreneurship or owning your own business, Mm -hmm. either private, either by yourself or in a cooperation with others. That's a good thing because then you still have ownership of this thing through which you could create and let your uh, fertility run wild. But when you go work for someone else, your fecundity your artistic ability to express yourself is inevitably restricted. And that's what bothered him. He said, if we're human, we're meant to create, we're meant to be fertile or fecund, that happens most lively 
in your home, in your garden, yeah. among your family. Yeah. Have and you that, ever? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Have you ever read any Joel Salatin? He's like an American farmer. Yeah. He's still living. Regenerative. Yeah. Yeah, 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 like yeah. regenerative farming. So yeah. I'm reading his book right now called Family Friendly Farming, which is actually just a great book for anyone who has a family business. Um, and he talks about how like when he and his wife, like, because to have a farm, you're losing money. So he had to have jobs in town, you know, and the kids went to school in town. Um, but once they decided to like homeschool and then they like had enough money that they could pull back on their in-town jobs, he said that the rate of like slippage on the farm, like things that you couldn't be present for on the farm, like drastically fell. And so their farm became so much more fertile because they weren't constantly gone. Like if you're not present for the birthing of a calf, that calf could die, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so like you're, um, the, what you're losing, your loss, I can't think of words today, but like the closer that you are to home, the yeah. less loss that you have and the more abounding your business is. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, that's one thing I've discovered almost accidentally. We kind of fell into it, uh, as our family. So we've got seven kids and we homeschool like you guys. And we knew ever since we started having kids that we were going to be homeschooling. But when we first got married, we just lived in the suburbs. I worked at an engineering job. I would drive out from my job, be away from home and away from my family all day and then drive back. Uh, but now I work remotely for Ward on Fire. And so I work from home, which means I'm home all day with my kids, with my family, with our animals, with our land. And it, it, I didn't, this didn't strike me going into it. I've only realized it later upon reflection that this is how the overwhelming majority of human beings mm -hmm. throughout history have lived. Right. Like yeah. it, it, that, I don't know why that fact never struck me until we started living that lifestyle that like the aberration is for men and women to be away from their kids during the day for kids mm -hmm. to be sent off somewhere else during the day. Like that all really just started around the time of the industrial revolution. But like yeah. the natural rhythm of life for every human civilization was that the family would be together at home. And there's economic benefits to that, as you mentioned with Joel Saladin. Um, but I think there's deeper spiritual, yeah. emotional, social benefits as well. Right. Yeah, we, um, it's, as you were saying, Teresa, it's not just about the business, it's being there for so many of the other non-tangible things that are lost. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we speaking here sort of in the context of homeschooling, but again, more generally, just the degree to which we can be close to that, that sort that home. Um, it's all those little interactions. It's all that time together. Um, all the in-between uh, space, between activities, between uh, that we spend with people that we are there to see. You know, I, connected to here, um, I think is this concept of leisure and the, and the relationship between work and leisure. And Joseph Pieper's book, uh, Leisure is the Basis of Culture, I was just rereading a little bit of some of that this morning. You know, and we, again, we have it, just as we have the, the I think the home and the workplace backward, you know, as, as one is the holding place to get out there and go back to the business. We have the relationship between work and, and the space for leisure reversed as well. You know, we tend to think of leisure, as, as Pieper talks about, as the, the, the break we take to get refreshed so we can go out and do more work because the work's the important thing. And it's the exact opposite, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you're right. Absolutely. That most of us see work as central in life and like leisure is what we do to fill in the gaps when we're not working. Right. Um, but I see the same 
sort of um, misorientation with work and and family, and I'm speaking from experience for the first few years of our marriage, like I just wasn't home a whole lot because I'm working 40 hours a week during the week. So I'm home maybe for a couple hours in the morning and a few hours at night and then the weekends. So for me, the home was like one place among many in my life. Mm -hmm. I had my office, which I spent probably as much time as I did at home, then home, then church, then the grocery store, then restaurants. But now that we've uh, moved out to this little homestead, and as I said, you know, we homeschool, I'm working at home, the home has become the locus, and we sporadically go out to these other places, but always come back home. Like the home is always mm -hmm. the central place. And for Peeper, that's how leisure was. Leisure was the locus. Leisure is like what we're here, what we're created for. And right. for him, I mean, as you know, John Mark, like leisure doesn't mean just streaming Netflix. Like leisure <laughs> right. means like deep human activities that are goods of their own sake. Right. You know, probably the highest form of leisure is contemplation, yeah. thinking mm -hmm. about Worship. the good, the true, the beautiful God. And so that's like what we're here for. That's mm -hmm. the main human activity and everything else like work, you know, is works good in and of itself too. It has its own dignity, but it's not the main thing. Right. It's meant to allow us to have the ability to participate in leisure um, like your job is good to the extent that it allows you to have a home and property and provide food and shelter and time for leisure. Leisure is the main thing. Right. You know, one of the most integrative books I've read on leisure, life, work, et cetera, is Lark Rise to Candleford. I don't know if we can see it. Yeah, tell me, tell it, me about that. So yeah. it's it's written actually around the time of Chesterton. So it's um, about the peasant countryside. Um, and Flora Thompson grew up in the peasant countryside. And then she, you know, got an education and, and um, moved out of it. But it's just her reflections and almost minutest, the minutest details of her life in the country and the common man. And it is the most glorious, beautiful uh, pre-industrial revolution. I think it's right at the time that the industrial stuff is starting to happen. And it's lovely. And you see like these men, the, the men were the gardeners, you know, they took pride in how big of a pea that they could produce. And, you know, the community slaughtered pigs together once a year, you know, and the kids, it's very little house on the prairie, but for, right. for England and I, much more lovely. Um, but there was a, an article in Gilbert, maybe, or a Chesterton periodical called The Man's Place is in the Home. <laughs> yeah. Did, did sure you read that? I loved yeah. it. <laughs> I yeah. think I do remember reading it. I think it was in So, so you men right. talk about that concept. Yeah. Right. Well, well it's obviously <laughs> yeah. a turn of phrase, right? I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, that what a provocative headline that was, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but I agree with it. And I know mm. it's not popular to say, and, it, and of course, the author of it and the concept doesn't imply that the man's role is to be the homemaker. It implies that the man is supposed to work with or near the family. And again, yeah. like in every pre-industrial civilization, most of which were agricultural, this was just out of necessity that families stayed close together and worked together that, you know, the kids helped work in the fields with mom and dad. And so the family was doing work all day, but they were working together. And then it was only at the Industrial Revolution when men were sent to factories and then later in the, in the 20th century, you know, women um, pursued the right to work outside the home. And so a lot of women left the home as well. And then with modern education, kids are sent off to school and suddenly the home's empty. Nobody's there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, 
I mean, there's goods in that. And I don't want to, I don't want to deny the value of women working outside the home and men working outside the home. Of course, there's like God brings about goods through virtually every scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are some, I think, very major drawbacks that a lot of our generation has never even considered. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, like I was saying earlier, it wasn't until I started working from home and being home all day that I started to recognize all these benefits that I had never even considered. Yeah. Yeah. And for both men and women, uh, I think it's important to note here that when we're talking about like many of us, like we're doing this, this show, Brandon, you've got a a lot of different projects going, podcasts and stuff like that. It's important for us to keep in mind that, yeah, God does as, I mean, the, the objection here might be God God does call us to some of these other vocations. He gives us some missions and projects to work on, but keeping in mind that for that second thing to work, the first things have to be in place. And there, there is a real truth to those vocations. You know, our, our primary vocation is to be holy, to, to, to worship our God. But very shortly after, or perhaps the very next thing after, is if you're married, that marriage is your primary vocation. The work is, is for that. It's to support that. And so you may have other important ministry projects, you know, a parish or a, you know, a media project. But if you want God to, to grace that, you have to first be faithful to the primary vocation he's given you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've realized that through trial and error myself. Like mm-hmm. early on, after I graduated college, you know, I was going around speaking at conferences and writing books or doing online stuff. And it became quickly evident to me that a lot of the stuff I was doing was contradictory to fostering my vocation to my wife and kids, if only because I was away for so long, you know, flying over here, flying over there, doing that. And so I basically gave all that up. So I don't speak anymore. I really don't travel anymore because I realized just what you described, John Mm -hmm. Mark, that like, you know, you could, you could do the most amazing things for the kingdom of God outside your house. But if your vocation withers or becomes secondary or tertiary, you failed, you failed because that's the one thing God has given you to foster is to draw your wife or your, your husband into holiness, to raise holy kids. And it doesn't matter how much other good things you're doing in the workplace or side hustles, your volunteer work and you know, all the yeah. other stuff. If you're not getting the first things right, the second things right. don't matter. And, and they won't be as fruitful. And that's another yeah. thing too. It's not just that it's, it's wrong if you're doing it. It's that you don't know what God can work from you if you're not first faithful. You know, whatever, whatever you think you whatever good you think you're doing, uh, if you're not putting the first things first, you don't know what the potential is for those other things because you're not co-creating with God. You're, you're the artist who's stopped listening to the muse. You know, if you want God to work through you, your art, your, your skills that he's given you, walk with God, walk humbly with your God, fulfill the first things first, you know, worship, take care of your family and put that first and then see what he does, what he calls you to, what great things he does, uh, have you participated? Mm, yeah. Beautifully said. Well, this has been a fun conversation and we're going to wrap up here in a minute because I know you've got to go, Brandon, but just for a minute, um, tell us about your particular canvas, you know, the, uh, your Burrowshire farm, right? I got that right? You got it right. Yeah. So I, as I've kind of hinted at a yeah. little bit through the conversation, so about five years ago, uh, my wife and I sensed that we ourselves were kind of getting burned out from the suburbs. So both of us had been born and raised in the suburbs. And just if I can digress for a second, the suburbs are another example of um, uh, of the problem we've been describing here, that when people lose control of their own property, you tend to get monotony 
So this is why like yeah. factories are typically ugly. Schools and prisons are typically ugly. And in the suburbs, there's a tendency to have a lot of cookie cutter monotony. You don't have, for yeah. example, a lot of houses that like are a neighborhood where every house looks different. Every house yeah. is a different style or a different color that the tendency is to make them all the same. And a lot of that's due to things like, you know, um, what do they call, uh, like when you have a neighborhood association, places a lot of restrictions on it. That's the antithesis of what Chesterton's saying (laughs) that like your ownership should not be needlessly restricted. You should be free to express yourself creatively through your property. So anyway, away from that digression, we realized, you know, we, we didn't like living in the suburbs. We wanted to get a piece of property, a productive property with animals and a garden, things where we could grow our own food, where we could, you know, learn things like, you know, how, like, I want our kids to be able to understand how life comes to be in other forms besides, you know, seeing their siblings come into the world. Um, So we took a leap five years ago, we bought a five acre piece of property out here in the country. And uh, there was already a house on it. So we didn't have to build a house, but we added pasture and fencing and animals. Now we're up to, I think, uh, 11 goats and about 40 <laughs> chickens and a couple of pigs and ducks. And we just got 50,000 bees. So we just installed <laughs> a bee colony Whoa, there. And, uh, wow. We also have, what else? We got a rabbit that's more of a pet. Um, <laughs> but the natural rhythms of this lifestyle and this property, again, are things that I didn't expect. So for example, you know, my, my son, oldest son now, Isaiah, he's 11 you know, it's his duty to go out and take care of the animals. So every morning and every night he goes out and he feeds the animals, he checks on them, he tends them. He's, he's now picking up on the signs of like, what does it look like if things aren't right with a particular animal or when should I be concerned? And so he's himself becoming more in tune with the natural rhythms of the world. You know, he's seeing, (laughs) we've got some, some, uh, some questions about, you know, why is that, why is that goat climbing on the back of that other goat? Or why is that chicken (laughs) chasing that chicken around there? And after explaining what's going on now, our kids like know how reproduction works. And so when it was finally time to have, you know, that talk with our kids at a human level, they had all the concepts in place to understand it. It wasn't really a big deal because they, they see that in, in their natural world every day. And then finally the, maybe the theme we've been talking about here a lot, the ability to shape this property in our own image. You know, there's no real restrictions or homeowners groups telling us you can't make a garden there. You can't put a pen over there. You can't cut down that tree or plant another tree over there. You can't paint your walls this color, put a fence in there. And so slowly over the last five years, we're shaping this property Mm -hmm. how we want. It's been a reflection of our philosophy and of our interests and like it's, it's got our fingerprint on it. And we're hoping that, you know, it, it, we stay here for the rest of our lives and through our children's lives. And it's passed down to them that this, this place becomes an imprint of our family. And it speaks to what our family values and what our family's about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what the property has meant to us. That's, that's beautiful, Brandon. And I, I it's very inspiring, you know, as uh, the individual things you're doing with the land, but also again, the I think the underlying discernment, you know, that you and your wife made, you know, to not uh, fit your faith and your beliefs and your values into this cookie cutter American life, but to reform the life to prioritize those most important things. And that, 
you know, I think that's, that's a takeaway here. This, this discussion is such a perfect one for this show, Elevate Ordinary, because the point is wherever, whatever living situation or vocation situation you're in, uh, those in the audience, you can start where you're at and begin to cherish the things in your life, begin to, to, to uh, dream big about these vocations that God's called to you. Start where you are, elevate the ordinary, discover God in those little things. Um, and again, be, you never know where he'll take you uh, in, in light of that. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of things to put in the show notes for this. I mean, we, we could put some resources about distributism. We, we have mentioned a bunch of different books, um, a, a number All of, of quotes. Brandon's apostolates. I've, I've got a quote from <laughs> Chester. I didn't even get to read where he's writing to his fiance, telling her about how he wants yeah. to inscribe the, the kitchen pot and the broom and the brush with scripture. You know, he wants to make their home mythological and amazing. I'll put that in the show notes. But if people want to connect with you, Brandon, what can they do? Uh, best place is my website, which is just my name, Brandon Vogt, V-O-G-T dot com. It's got my email on there, everything else. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, for joining us. Thank you. Oh, delight. I feel like the three of us could talk for probably. Amen. We'll Amen. come and visit you. We'll do it. We'll take you up on <laughs> you that. You come and yeah. visit us. <laughs> and and thank you for joining us for this episode of Elevate Ordinary. We think we hope you enjoyed this discussion, and you'll join us for another one next week. In the meantime, if you like what we're doing here on uh, Elevate Ordinary, as well as the Awakened Catholic uh, Apostolate at large, uh, please consider joining the Awakened Nation. Go to awakenedcatholic.org/donate. A one-time or recurring donation really helps us out. But also consider downloading the Hallow app at hallow.app/awaken. It's a Christian Catholic meditation app that's uh, really well implemented beautiful a free 30-day subscription uh i got that right yeah it really supports the ministry so check those out um and again as we mentioned uh, i think earlier in, in other episodes we want to know what you think you know share your thoughts share the ways that you're elevating the ordinary the ways that you are using your the canvas that is the property the stuff that god's given you how you're making that your art how you're expressing yourself through that um and again uh, thank you for joining us so we'll talk to you again next week god bless this show and all media on Awaken Catholic is made possible by the Awaken Nation and the Hollow app. The Awaken Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org slash donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app slash awaken.